2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. Amen. For which cause I also suffer these things, nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. I want to speak to you today, or this evening on the subject, I know something you don't know. Father, in Jesus' name, I'm asking you to be with us. Lord, oh God, let us not stand before this people in self-sufficiency, oh Lord, for our sufficiency was of Christ. And Lord, we're asking you, God, that even though we know that the grass withers and the flower fades, we know that the word of God shall stand forever. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Watch this uh, clip from one of my favorite movies. Amen. No one of consequence. I must. Get used to disappointment. Okay. All righty, that wasn't it. That was the tail end of the clip. Roll that beautiful bean footage. It won't, it won't take. Okay. All right, you can be dismissed. Your ticket price will be <laughs> refunded to you. Well, how many ever saw The Princess Bride? Anybody raise your hand. Y'all are woefully ignorant folks, I'm telling you. Go home tonight and watch The Princess Bride. It's a clean, a funny movie. In that scene, they were, two men were uh, sword fighting. And uh, one said to the other, said, uh, you fight very well, and you are better than me, I admit. To which the other one replied, well, why are you smiling? He said, well, I know something you don't know. I'm not left-handed. At which time he throws the sword over to his other hand, and his fighting much improves because he's fighting with his dominant hand. Then the other guy smiles and said, well, I know something you don't know. I'm not left-handed either. At which point he switches hands and of course overcomes and wins. The Apostle Paul was saying, I know something that you don't know. The uninformed man will always be at the service of the man who knows something. It is credited to Sir Francis Bacon, this saying in Latin, sentia potentia est, which means Knowledge is power. The Apostle Paul found himself in prison. He had, not, he had lost his freedom, but he had not lost his fight. He had been a missionary extraordinaire. He had traveled the world for Christ. His ministry had been fruitful. His ministry had not only seen many converts, but had been marked with miracles and signs and wonders. He had not been without hardship, but out of every situation the Lord delivered him, whether it was from the icy waters of the deep or from a snake coming out of a fire and biting him on the hand, which he just shook off in the fire and kept on going, or whether it was from a Philippian jail cell when he and Silas sang praises 
at midnight, the Lord had delivered him time and time and time again. But now Paul is uh, in the basement of the Mamertine prison in Rome. Uh, perhaps he can stand on his tiptoe and crane his neck and look out the window and maybe see the chopping block where he will soon lose his life. He had lost his freedom, but he had not lost his fight. He also looked back over his work and he saw that some of the very churches at which he had labored, some that he had invested blood, sweat, and tears, some which he had travailed over uh, as a woman giving birth, some that he had promised to dedicate to the Lord as a chaste virgin. Some of those very, very churches had found their way into apostasy especially Corinth, who were glorying in the things that they ought to be ashamed of, accepting and celebrating immorality that even the lost would not stand for. He also had some future plans that now seemed to be jeopardized. It was in his heart, in his mind, in his plans to go to Spain. He had wanted to do that and spread the gospel in Spain before and the Holy Spirit stopped him and sent him instead to Macedonia. And we ought to be glad because Macedonia was his foray, that's Greece, it was his foray into Europe and the vast majority of us here tonight are of European descent. So we ought to be glad that the Lord sent him to Macedonia instead of Spain. But he wasn't able to go and Depending on which historian, which scholar that you read after, some thinks that he got out of prison in Rome and did go to Spain, but I think probably most scholars would accept the fact that he never made it out of that jail cell. So there were things that he had hoped to do. Life had not worked out the way Saul as a young man had desired. It had not worked out the way he had wished. He did not fulfill the dreams, the aspirations, the plans, the goals that he had set for himself. And so now, here he is, at least a middle-aged man, perhaps never having been married, no children, no family, and he is in prison at which he's not sure that he will ever escape or ever be set free from, and he finds himself there. The future is bleak. The past is disappointing. And he himself has lost his freedom. What was Paul's response to such a grim reality? He said, the Lord called me to be a Gentile this apostle. He called me to be the apostle to the Gentiles and to preach his gospel in region beyond, and because of that, I'm now suffering these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed. Why am I not ashamed? Well, I can see the devil sitting over in the corner taunting Paul, and Paul with a wry smile looking at him and saying, Devil, I know something <laughs> that you don't know. <laughs> I know whom I have believed and I am persuaded that he 
is able to keep those things that I've committed unto him against that day. Now the next time, anybody, anybody remember, let me ask you this, anybody remember when you were a kid and uh, you used to know a secret that you might get around your friends or your siblings and kind of skip around and in kind of a na-na-na-na voice say, I know something you don't know. I know something you don't know, right? Well, I will tell you the next time that the devil begins to put on you, you know, your life didn't turn out the way you wanted it to. You know, there's a lot of unfulfilled dreams. There's things that you gave your life to that didn't work out well. And uh, there's hopes and plans for the future that you won't ever get to realize. The next time the devil tries to put that on you, I want you to do your best impersonation of a schoolboy or a schoolgirl on the schoolyard and kind of dance around and look at devil and say, I know something you don't know. I know something you don't know. I know something you don't know. I know whom I have believed and I am persuaded that he's able to keep those things I've committed unto him against that day. Do you believe that? Let's give him a hand clap of praise. Amen. Amen. Well, what was it that the apostle Paul knew? He said, I suffer these things for the cause of Christ. I'm not ashamed because I know somebody. You remember that old song we used to sing? Some have been in church for a long time. I want to know more about my Jesus. I want to know more about my Lord. He didn't talk about what he knew. He talked about who he knew. Look at your neighbor and say, it's not what you know. It's who you know. He said, I know whom I have believed in. Now, that had not always been the case with Paul. Paul had been a young man who was once known for what he knew. He was in high demand for what he knew. He was sought after for what he knew. His claim to fame, his, his sense of accomplishment, his sense of identity was wrapped up in what he knew. Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us about Paul. He was probably somewhere maybe around five feet tall, small man, bald-headed, with a hooked nose, and uh, kind of uh, bowed legs, kind of a comical-looking person. In fact, one of the things that was interesting about him is his name was Saul. Saul was the first king of Israel, as you know, and Saul was famous for standing head and shoulders above the rest. I wonder if his mother, when she looked at this little uh, runt of the litter that she held in her hands when he was born, if there were any, was any sense of irony when she named him Saul. He was from the same tribe that King Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. I don't know, I'm probably reading in between the lines a little bit here, but I wonder how he fared in his school days. I wonder how other people related to him. It would seem to me that his own stature, his own stature mocked his name. 
He had a great name and he was a small man, but he wasn't small-minded. The apostle Paul was a brilliant man. He was a man of great intellect and he set himself to desiring to learn. There was one area in which he was gifted, one area in which he excelled. And that was the area of the religion of his fathers. That, that's what gave him his identity. That's what gave him his platform. And so he made it his goal in life to practice that religion with rigid obedience. And he succeeded. Some think that he was in line, even though he wasn't born, and this was so unusual, even though he wasn't born in Palestine, he wasn't born in Israel. He was, he was born over in Asia Minor, Asia Minor in, at Tarsus, uh, and was even a Roman citizen, but it, somewhere along the line he was sent to Jerusalem to study under Gamaliel, the great uh, rabbi of the day. And some think, that the Apostle Paul was in line to become the next great chief rabbi, which would have been an unusual step for someone not born as a Palestinian Jew. I think this is a good part of the reason that when this, uh, this kind of uh, deviant sect of Judaism that were followers of Jesus of Nazareth were kind of detouring away and, and preaching things like you didn't have to be a Jew to be saved. You didn't have to be circumcised to be saved. You didn't have to follow the law of Moses to be saved. And that, that Jesus was opening it up to uh, non-Jewish people, to Gentiles, to be a part of the kingdom and and preaching against all of the rules and regulations of the Pharisees that they kept religiously. I think this is one of the reasons he was so con consenting to Stephen, the first Christian martyr's death, and why he would such, even though I think he thought he was doing the work of God, I think he was also propelled by the fact that if what they were preaching was true, what he had been and known and excelled at no longer mattered. And so with that kind of, of a burr in his saddle, he went with vehement and vicious effort after Christians and just ravaged them like a wolf. And he bragged about it. In Philippians chapter 3, Starting in verse five, he gives an account of all that he had accomplished, all that would recommend him. He was circumcised the eighth day like a good Jewish boy should be, out of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which was in the law, blameless. He said, I had the pedigree. I was known for what I knew. But he said, those things that were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things lost for the excellency 
of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung that I may win Christ. And be found in him not having mine own righteousness which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings be made conformable unto his death if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Not as though I had already attained either were already perfect, but I follow after if that I may apprehend that for which I am also apprehended of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth in those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. He said, I don't want to be known anymore for what I know. I want to be known for who I know. That's my only pursuit. It's not knowledge, it's not praise. It's not recognition. It is, uh, it's not even having some sense of accomplishment. Only thing I'm concerned about is knowing Jesus. In fact, he said to the churches he established, I'm not interested in knowing a whole lot about you. I don't want to know a whole lot about what's going on with you. Only thing I want to know about you is Jesus Christ and him crucified. I preached a message here one time about Paul called the know-it-all who knew nothing that became the know-nothing that knew it all. He said, I know whom I have believed and because of that, I am persuaded. I am persuaded. Is this thing on? Okay, if I said say amen, can I squeeze one out of you tonight? Can you say Amen. Okay, I was making sure you was awake because just, it just didn't feel like it was landing. He said, I know whom I have believed and I am persuaded. That's the word pitho and pitho uh, is a Greek, was a Greek goddess and she was the goddess of persuasion. She had, a, she had an opposite in that pantheon of God called Baia. She was the Greek goddess of force and the Lord Jesus doesn't work under Force. He doesn't work through force. That's, that's the devil's crowd that does that. That's the way Islam works. Either convert or die. But the Lord doesn't work that way. The Lord works through persuasion. He said, I am persuasion, uh, persuaded. In other words, I am convinced. God has proved to me. Anybody out there that the Lord's proved that he's faithful? I said, has the Lord ever proved that he's good? Has he ever proved that he'll, oh, that he'll uh, do what he said he'll do? Has he ever proved to you that he'll be a very present help in time of trouble? In the middle of the night, has the Lord ever persuaded you that you can trust him? How many of you are persuaded that he's able? You don't just think he's able. You don't hope he's able. You're fully convinced he's able. You're persuaded that he is able. He said, I am persuaded that he is able. Now I want to tell you what persuasion is. This is how you know that you're convinced. 
I love the old story about the uh, guy that stretched out a line, a wire across Niagara Falls. And he got on there with the pole and he walked. I could, I could not walk across here without falling off these steps. But he walked on that line across uh, the, the uh, Niagara Falls and when he got to the other side, he turned around and he came back. Then he got on a bicycle and rode the bicycle across and rode it back across again. Then he got a wheelbarrow and in the wheelbarrow, he, he uh, rolled in across. By the way, I found out all these years I've been calling it a wheelbarrow and it's not a wheelbarrow. How many of y'all think it's a wheelbarrow? Raise your hand. I'm the only idiot here. No, okay, there's a couple. It's not a wheelbarrow, it's a wheelbarrow. No such thing as a wheelbarrow. So he pushed one of them across. <laughs> he pushed the wheelbarrow across and then came back to the other side and everybody clapped. And there was one little boy standing there, just wide-eyed. He said, son, you believe I can push this wheelbarrow across again? He said, yes, sir. He said, son, do you really believe I can push it across and back? He'd already seen him do it. He'd seen him ride a bicycle across there, seen him dance on it, seen him uh, you know, walk across it a couple of times. He said, yes, sir, I really believe that. Son, are you fully persuaded? Yes, sir. He said, well, son, get in the wheelbarrow. How many of you at that point would be fully persuaded? You see, there's all kinds of people out there that will tell you what they think God can do, what they think he will do. But there's only a few of faith-filled, brave souls that'll get in the wheelbarrow. There's only a few that'll say, I'm fully persuaded. See, uh, Rod reminded me of something he had shared with me. Rod trying to work on the house that he had up in Atlanta, trying to get it fixed up, Try to sell it, all of that kind of stuff. And, and he did, I don't know if he did what I did, but I understand it. He tried, to, he tried to redo some floors and he ruined them. I did that one time myself. Chris and I had a house and we tried to redo some floors and uh, we sanded them down and then we put a, a, a stain on them and then we put uh, a polyurethane over that. I didn't know that you had to stir that polyurethane up. It was shiny, but every time you walked on it, it just flaked off. Just, I don't know if that's what he did. He, probably, he thinks he's smarter than me anyway. But he said, oh my goodness. What am I going to do? I guess I'm going to have to sand them down and start all over. How am I going to get a hold of a sander? Am I going to have to rent one? Where am I going to find one? And a person that he knows that's, that's, that's a, I think, a realtor maybe, she pulls up in the yard and he's talking to her about those floors. She said, oh, I got a sander in my trunk. See, whenever things are going well, and whenever God answers prayers in the way we think he ought to answer them, it's easy to say, yeah, I'm convinced. 
But Paul said this when he was in prison. He said this with rats nibbling at his toes. He said, that he, he said this living with the stench of human excrement all around. In a damp, dark prison and not knowing exactly what was going to happen. He said, I am not basing this on what I see. I am not basing this on what he's done. I'm not basing this on what he's going to do. I'm basing my persuasion on who he is. And because I know who he is, I know he's able to hold on to the things that I've given to him. He said, I am persuaded that he is able. That word able is dunatos, and it's from the same root as dunamis, power. He's able because he's got power. Now, I don't know if you ladies in the, in the crowd, not, I'm not trying to dismiss you or anything like that. I just don't know if you quite get the way men interact with each other and love on each other. But if men are buddies, we go up to each other and say something like, we don't say, hey man, it's good to see you. Or boy, I really appreciate you. We go up and say, you sorry looking rascal, I'd like to just slap snot out of you right now. That's, that's man talk for, hey man, you're my friend and I really love you. That is unless you don't know them. <laughs> So some of the guys were standing back here today and I walked up to them and I said, I was just, I was just looking for somebody to, to whip today. Any one of you three want to volunteer? Adam was standing back there and he said, you picked the wrong crowd. <laughs> I, I ain't never been in a fight in my life, folks. I've gotten beat up a few times, but I was never in the fight. <laughs> so, when you look at, at men, and they talk about defending their home, defending, and I don't know if you, if you ladies know this, but men need that. It's the way we're made, and it's the way we're built. We need to protect you so even when you think it's an insult to you because we don't think you're strong enough, it's not that, we're, that we think you're not strong enough. It's that we need to be your hero. We need to be your protector. And so it says, I'm persuaded. Now when I said to those guys I was going to kick their behinds today, I wasn't persuaded I could do that. I was persuaded they knew I was joking. But he says, listen, I know the God I serve, he's strong-armed. He's a big deal. I know he is able to keep. That word there means to guard, to protect. You ever pulled up in somebody's yard and they have, have a sign on their door that says, this house protected by Smith and Wesson? That's a big debate in the world. Now listen, I'm not, I'm not all you gun enthusiasts. I'm not against you having it. I'm not against having it. 
I have a couple of, of rifles in my, in my house. I'm not, not against guns. I'm for the Second Amendment right. I believe all of that. I'm, I, I'm, I'm not a member of the NRA, but I support it. My favorite actor is Tom Selleck, and I like Charleston Heston too. So I'm, I'm with you. I, you, don't, you don't have to try to convince me, but I will tell you that I've got something better than Smith & Wesson protecting my house. At 4773 Douglas Broxton Highway, Broxton, Georgia, I've, I dedicated that land, I dedicated that property, I dedicated that house to the Lord Jesus Christ and he looks over it. You say, well, you don't think it's right. No, it's fine. Do whatever you want to do and it's fine and if it comes down to that, God help you and God help them. But I'm telling you, that my confidence is not in my ability to keep myself. And I'm going to tell you, I do, I do believe that the, uh, that the perversion of the way that some people have taught eternal security has been detrimental. The, the mindset that, that you can live like the devil and still get there because you was baptized when you were six. There's, that's a perversion. But I'm going to tell you, this mindset of eternal insecurity that a lot of us was raised with has done a lot of harm as well. And there's some people that think of their salvation, that they, as one person said, they think that they're to, able to, to nail pegs in the side of the ark and hold on as best they can through the flood. But I'm going to tell you, I've been brought into the ark and the door has been shut and I am secure in Jesus, not because of who I am, but because of who he, he is. And he is able to keep the things that I've committed unto him against that day. Sure, I have, I have a choice. Sure, I can decide to leave him. Sure, I can decide to walk away. Certainly, all of the Bible bears all of that out. But I'm going to tell you, if you think you're going to make it because you can tiptoe around the eggshells and be good enough and perfect enough, you've already lost it already. But I'm persuaded that he is able. He can guard it. He can keep it. I, I reminded the story of an acquaintance of mine tells. He said there were a couple of guys from up in Buffalo, New York, and they were headed down to Orlando, Florida, and they got, they got down around Waycross. They, they decided that they didn't want to just uh, go the ordinary route. They decided that they were going to, to see some of the back country, and so they, they headed uh, down 441, and they got down there around Fargo, and their engine started sputtering, and they had to pull over, and it was about dusk, and they had to walk down with the, both ditches full of water and nothing but pine trees on each side till they got to the center of Fargo. And there was one little light there outside of a store and they saw a little garage there and they went in and there wasn't nobody at the garage but there was a fellow standing in the convenience store. He said, can I help you? He said, yeah. He said, we're having car trouble. And said, we, we're, actually, we're actually mechanics that are headed down to Orlando. We're mechanics back in, in Buffalo, New York, but... 
We can fix it. We know what we need, but we got to have a part. He said, well, fella, it's, it's 7.30 on Saturday night. You're not going to get nothing around here. He said, please, is there anybody? He said, well, my brother-in-law next door here, he owns the junkyard. He probably can find one for you. And so he calls up his brother-in-law and brother-in-law comes up. He's a little bit aggravated, being disturbed. He'd had a hard week. And he said, well, boys, I, they told him to make him model the car. He said, well, I think I got one out there in the junkyard. He said, but I ain't going out there in the middle of the night and getting one off of the car for you. If you mechanics, you all know how to do it. You just, you go out there and if you find one, you come back here and pay my brother-in-law and we'll be fine. And so they went in and he forgot to tell them that he had a Rockweiler that guarded that junkyard. But he did tell them, he said, now boys, I know you're not going to believe this, but be careful because in the middle of my junkyard, there is a bottomless pit. If you fall in there, you're never going to be seen again. Well, they got in there. They tried to find their part, and they came up, and sure enough, they came to the bottomless pit. They said, there's no way. The bottomless pit's not going to be at a South Georgia junkyard. He said, well, he said it was. Well, they tried to shine their light down in there. They didn't see anything. Meanwhile, back at the service station, the two guys were talking. He said, shoot, I forgot to tell those boys about that Rottweiler. He said, well, did you at least chain him up? He said, yeah, I chained him to an old engine block. Maybe, maybe they can outrun him. He said, well, I hope so. Well, they're standing back trying to find. They, they found a little, you know, little junk. And, uh, you know, little junk piece of trash, a headlight or something, threw it down there. They didn't even hear it. They didn't even hear it splash. So we're going to have, to have something heavier than that. So they found an old engine block. And they threw that engine block down there. And they counted to see how long it took them to hit the bottom. And they never heard it hit. So they gave up. It spooked them. They gave up and they went back to the, back to the, uh, uh, you know, the service station and they, they went in and they, the guy's still standing there. And said, well, what happened? Did you get the parts? Said, no. Said, but I won't tell you, it's the craziest thing we ever saw. Nothing like this ever happened up in New York City. Said, we threw, we found that bottomless pit and we threw an engine block in to see just how far down it would go. How long it would take it to hit the bottom and said, before we could get out of there, there was a huge Rottweiler came running by as fast as he can and dove in that bottomless pit after that, <laughs> after that engine block. Now I won't tell you, you got a Rottweiler defending your place, guarding your place, he might fail. But can I tell you that we've got a God that cannot fail? When you've given something over to his protection, you can count that he is able to keep that that we've committed unto him against that day. That word committed is the word paratheke. And it, here's what it was. Back in those days, they didn't have banks. So people would take 
their possessions, especially if it was something so dear to them that they wanted to pass on. And they might take it to the home of a friend. And it was a sacred trust that you would hold on to it and return it to them or to their descendants. If something were happening to you, they'd give it to your descendants. Sometimes people would take it to ancient temples and temples would act as their bank. That's what they would do. They would give their valuables over to someone else. That's what Paul said. Paul said, I've taken the things that are most valuable to me and I've handed them over into the nailed, scarred hands of Jesus for him to hang on to them until that day comes. So I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed. Even though I'm in this prison. Now listen, I'm telling you, there's some of us that when we go through hard times, we're embarrassed to be going through hard times. There are people, when they, God's people, when they get sick, they're too embarrassed to tell other people they're sick because they think other people won't think they have faith. Isn't that stupid? Whenever James said, if there's any sick among you, <laughs> you call for the elders of the church and let them pray for you. Well, that kind of implies that sometimes there's going to be sick among us and that it's okay to like tell people that that's not a lack of faith to ask people to pray. That's what the method is. Amen? There are people that won't tell you that they lost their job. They won't tell you that they're having trouble in their marriage. They won't tell you that their children are wayward because they're more concerned about what you think about them than they are getting results. But Paul said, I'm not shamefaced because I'm in this prison. I'm not embarrassed because I'm here. I don't feel like God's let me down because I know something you don't know. I know whom I have believed. And because of that, I'm persuaded. He's got it in the lockbox. What I've committed unto him, what I've deposited with him is secure and the little fleeting things of life do not change that. So I am not ashamed. I'm not ashamed. This is Joel 2, 26, 27. We're getting ready to close. This is Joel. You know, Joel chapter 2 is a Pentecostal chapter. Talks about the coming of the Spirit. But the setting of it is Joel had prophesied that the Babylonian army was going to swoop into to Israel or to Judah and going to be like a plague of locusts. In fact, some people think that it was actually both, that it, it was representative of the Babylonian army, but that there had also been a literal plague of locusts. They said, you know, all, you, all of your fields out there, what the locusts don't eat, the caterpillar will come along and eat what they didn't eat. And anything the caterpillar leaves, the canker worm's going to come and eat that up. But then he said, but listen, 
when the Spirit comes, when revival comes. Don't worry about that. This verse 26, 27, you shall eat in plenty. You shall be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God that has dealt wondrously with you and my people shall never be ashamed. He said, I'm going to restore to you what the canker worm and the palmer worm and the caterpillar and the canker worm have eaten. Verse 27, and you shall know that I'm in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and no one else and my people shall never be ashamed. I dealt with someone a few years ago that was, was uh, close to me. And all within about a six month period of time, they found out that their wife of 25 or more years had had multiple affairs and had confessed, repented, and they were trying to work it out and stay together because she, had, she was making changes. She wasn't continuing that, in that behavior. At the same time, he had a business that failed. And his business partner was so spiteful that he took out an arrest warrant on him. And this man was put in jail. Now you talk about a low spot in life. That man was also a minister of the gospel. And, had, and went to a new church to pastor in the middle of all of this. And one of the things that I used as we talked to encourage him was the scripture in Joel that I quoted to you, I will restore the years that the canker worm and the palmer worm have eaten. In the next 10 years, that church that the man went to in the midst of all of this personal tragedy and turmoil became a soul-saving station. People that had never darted the doors of the church got saved. Drug addicts delivered. People set on solid ground. In, in the spirit, the most productive time of the person's life. And his wife that had been so resistant to ministry became a person that could not get enough of the church and get enough of the presence of God and live their life to be supportive. I want to tell you, you may think that you've gone through things that things won't ever be the same. Let me tell you, they won't ever be, be the same. They would be better. Because he is able to keep that, that we've committed unto him against that day. A young man that lived during the American Civil War, his name was Daniel, Daniel Whittle. When he was uh, 
20 years old, 19, 20, he was enlisted. He enlisted in the infantry to go fight in the Civil War. And in the meantime, he had fallen deeply in love with a young lady. They got married. And the next day for the honeymoon, the Union Army sent him off to war. Things got worse at the Battle of Vicksburg. He was wounded, lost an arm in battle, and captured by the Confederates. While he was in the prison hospital, he got bored. And somebody handed him a Bible, and so he started reading the Bible. And he was moved by it. He was not a Christian. He was moved by it. He felt the need to ask Jesus to be his Savior and Lord, but he just couldn't bring himself quite to do it. He just wasn't ready. With those thoughts in his mind, he drifted off to sleep and one of the orderlies there roused him from his sleep. He said, come quickly. He said, we've got another patient that's dying and he's wanting somebody to pray for him. And Daniel Whittle said, I can't do it. I'm not qualified to do it. And the orderly said, oh, I, I, I'm sorry. I thought you were a Christian. I I saw you reading the Bible. So Whittle agreed to go with him and in his own words, he said, I dropped on my knees and I held that boy's hand in mine and in a few broken words, I confessed my sins and asked Christ to forgive me. And I believe right there he did forgive me. And then I prayed and pleaded God's promises and when I rose from my needs, he was dead. A look of peace had come over his troubled face. I cannot but believe that God who used him to bring me to the Savior used me to lead him to trust Christ's precious blood and find pardon. Later on, Daniel wrote these words. I know not why God's wondrous grace to me he hath made known nor why unworthy Christ in love redeemed me for his own. I know not how this saving faith to me he did impart, nor how believing in his word wrought peace within my heart. I know not what of good or ill may be reserved for me or weary ways or golden days before his face I see. I know not when my Lord may come at night or noonday fair, nor if I'll walk the veil with him or meet him in the air. But... I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Now Paul said that 
to set up this proposition, the very next two verses. He said, Timothy, this is verse 13 and 14 of 2 Timothy. Hold fast to the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me in faith and love which is in Christ Jesus that the good thing which was committed unto you will be kept by the Holy Ghost which dwells in us. He said, the things I've handed, and it's, here's the word, paratheke, the things I've handed over, deposited with Jesus. I want you to know parakatheke, that there's things that have been handed over to you, but they've been pushed way down inside of you. That not only have I given things over to God that he's able to keep, but he's given some things over to me that by his power he wants me to keep. I'm confident in what God can keep for me. And I'm also confident what his Holy Spirit can help me to keep for him. Amen. Would you stand? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Thank you for your time and your attention tonight. Father, in Jesus' name, Lord, people are going through so very, very much in our day. And God, there can be a temptation to lose hope. There can be a temptation to feel like, Lord, dare we even say it, to feel like, God, that we have served God in vain. Perish the thought. Lord, I am not ashamed because I know whom I have believed. And I am persuaded that you are able to keep that which I've committed unto you against that day. Lord, I thank you for your exceedingly great and precious promise. In Jesus' name, amen.